Well, guys, are you ready for the apocalypse? Uh, the, Reve the revelation, that's what revelation means, of course. Those of you that speak Spanish have uh, been conversant in that term. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about an approach. I, uh, I got some thoughts together for the whole book of Revelations because I figured it's probably better for you to have this at your disposal all at once. You can blast through it if you want. You can totally ignore it if you are not ready to wade into those deep waters. Really, it's not that bad. Guys, Revelation is the sum total. It's, uh, it's putting together everything that we've learned in the Old Testament and New Testament. The, uh, the Old Testament references is how we're going to understand the book of Revelation. Why? Because that's, that's what John was uh, playing on. That's what he was uh, tapping into is all this, this Old Testament and uh, intertestamental imagery. You know, Book of Enoch and Esdras and things like that. Uh, for these symbols, these were not unknown symbols. He wasn't making stuff up. He was tapping into symbols that were known to them. Well, what kind of help do we get from Joseph Smith? In 1843, he gave his only ever address on Revelation. That's not counting Section 77, which came during uh, the revision of the of the uh, New Testament, the Bible. Um, but on this occasion in 1843, uh, Elder Petaliah Brown had offered an interpretation of Revelation, and the other elders, these are all you know, going to go out on their missions, the other elders were arguing, and there was a lot of contention, which, which Joseph really, really hated. He, he, he hated that kind of contention. Uh, so, so he says, I don't know if I can find my cursor, he says, I could not help laughing at the idea of God making use of the figure of a beast to represent the kingdom of God on the earth. That's what Petalai Brown had done. You missed it that time, old man. That's what Joseph says. Can you hear him saying that? You missed it that time, old man. <laughs> what Joseph says after is, is, is so good. He says, he says a couple things that, that, had, that ought to be uh, keys for us. Don't be afraid of being damned for not knowing the meaning of a vision or figure where God has not given a revelation or interpretation. That's number one. If it's mysterious, it's okay. It's okay. He then tells the elders, and Petaliah Brown in particular, to preach repentance when they're sent out and not to meddle with beasts and things that they understand. Nevertheless, um, the, the bigger thing in my view is this. The High Council undertook to censure and correct Elder Brown this is a quote from Joseph Smith. The High Council undertook to censure and correct Elder Brown because of his teaching in relation to the beasts. And he came to me to know what he should do about it. I never thought it was right to call up a man and try him because he erred in doctrine. It looks too much like Methodism and not like Latter-day Saintism. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be kicked out of their church. I want the liberty of believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled. It don't prove that a man is not good because he errs in doctrine. That's the end of the quote from Joseph Smith. And if we just reflect a moment on the temple recommend questions, it's a few core testimonies and then what it is, what is it? Behavior, right? So some brilliant, brilliant truth came out of this contention about the book of Revelation. All right. Well, what's our, our approach going to be? Um, we're not going to look to the future. We're going to look to the past as... Um, as Hiram said in, a, in his really, really wonderful talk this last Sunday, I wanted to know what, something like this, I wanted to know what these things meant to the people that wrote them, right? And this is what's going to give us value from the book of Revelation. 
what would it have meant to its original audience? Um, but, you know, how, how can we know, how can we in our day know better than the generations that came before us what it meant to those original Christians? Um, you know, so so maybe the ancient and antique Christians understood this passage in such and such a way. Well, why wouldn't medieval and early modern Christians have understood it better than we can? Well, there's a lot of reasons, actually. We have access to things that they didn't have. One is all the libraries that have survived. We have them. They didn't. Um, and the other, of course, is the restoration. So this will be my approach, to take each little scene, each little vignette, and place it in the context as much as possible. It's not always possible. To place it in the context of his Old Testament or apocryphal or pseudepigraphic sources. Remember that, that the scriptures considered the apocrypha, or the, the Christians considered the scriptures the apocrypha to be scriptures, and tons of pseudepigraphic works that we don't accept today. Okay, Christians think are you know, demonic or whatever. No, they accepted him as scripture. And I really wish that I could disabuse the church of this, this ridiculous notion that we can look at the text in English, note how it strikes us now in the modern world with what we see around us, and then guess what the revelator meant uh, by what seems to match to us now. We get poppycock like, you know, the locusts of chapter 9 with their human faces and armor and scorpion stings. They're, they are transformed into Apache helicopter gunships and so forth. Well, let's, let's not do that. Um, and there isn't, a, there isn't a key, a revelation, you know, code uh, that someone's got to unlock by looking at what's around us. It's not, you know, so, so the original hearers of Revelation didn't uh, f finish listening to a recitation or, or as likely as not a, some kind of a performance. It's, it's styled as a, uh, as a Greek play uh, in so many ways. They, they would have um, listened to a recitation or seen a reenactment and said, well, okay. That was so much crap. That was so much gobbledygook, blah, 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 blah. I got no idea what that's talking about. But maybe people 2,000 years from now will understand it. No, that, that's, not, that's not the way revelation works. Right? Now, there can be true principles that recur throughout human history or that even amplify throughout human history. But it meant something to the people that it was given to. That's what we're trying to uncover as much as possible, right? The symbols that they already knew. Um, and... Okay, so that's this is why beasts and stars and things, because this is what they dealt with. And by the way, they, they were way, way better at allegory than we are. For us, we live in a scientific age. We want a one-to-one -one uh, con uh, correspondence. Uh, this equals this, right? Uh, one symbol has one definition, right? This is the way science has to operate. But they were conversant with symbols that, that that's more like poetry than science. And for them, symbols were polyvalent. That is, uh, well, in chemistry, uh, one thing doing multiple things at once or have the ability to do multiple things at once. A symbol is like a polyvalent, you know, end on this chemical, right? Um, one symbol can have multiple meanings at the same time on different levels. Um, and, and also, the kind of a variation of that is you can have multiple symbols symbolizing the same thing all at the same time. So that, let's take an example that you're familiar with. And that's uh, the rod of iron and the fruit of life in Lehi's vision. They both symbolize Jesus Christ at once. And they're, they're there together in the vision, symbolizing Jesus Christ. Two different things. Uh, yeah, that, that is something that would not have raised any eyebrows uh, to these ancients. Right? 
Uh, or like the tree of life and the word of life. They both symbolize the love of God, the, the beloved, the eternal companion of, of God on that, on that first, on that first level, the mother in heaven. And, and lots of other things like that. We'll, we'll encounter some of this as we go. The message of Revelation. I, I know it sounds like, and it's certainly played up to be, uh, you know, to portray things as a, as a uh, cataclysm and gloom and doom. And okay, yeah, it is that. It is that only because this is what our life is already. It is now. I mean, we live in these end times right now. The real message of Revelation is, something you've heard me say a bazillion times through these uh, through these weeks, is, uh, yeah, it looks like an absolute mess. But don't worry. I win. Don't lose hope. Stay on my team. This is, this is God speaking. Right? That's the message. That's the message. Persevere. It's going to be okay. And then don't, don't look for Revelation to be chronological. This is going to be a real, real important governing principle of how we go through here. And I hope that you'll find it useful. I certainly do. Um, don't look for Revelation to be chronological. We're going to see, for example, the war in heaven multiple times, three or, three or four different times in different places. The, the timeline, the Revelation is going to take us through thematically and typologically. And, and it's going to be very closely akin to the timeline of the temple. Uh, we, each of us, uh, are Adam and Eve. We experience our own pre-mortality and our own fall and our own descent into the lone and dreary world and our own rescue at the hands of uh, authorized ministers and our own teaching and ultimately reclamation into the kingdom of, of God, meaning into the eternal kingdom of God. Um, Revelation is going to be like that, right? Um, this is why, for example, in the temple, in the temple uh, presentation of the endowment, Adam and Eve have just been placed on earth, uh, but already it's full of people, right, and chaos, and then and Peter, James, and John come, etc. Right? The timeline is thematic and typological. They're not walking us through earthly history. They're walking us through an individual life, or two individual lives at the same time. Are we ready? <laughs> Chapter one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in them, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Of course, Asia is uh, Asia Minor, right? This is modern-day Turkey, right? Big, big hub of the church, of course. Big hub of commerce in the, in those times. Uh, let's see, still verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Is, was, and is to come. This is the name of the Father, okay? And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, so is and was and is to come. That's the Father. Um, seven spirits. What's this? Well, um, this is confusing. It's no wonder that uh, many of the, as I've said before, many of the first Latter-day Saints in that first generation didn't understand that the Holy Spirit is even a person. This is one good reason. Sevenfold spirit. Uh, well, but it goes like this. It's not that hard. Uh, the menorah was the physical representation of the tree of life, right? Uh, the tree of life uh, was the spirit. Uh, the, 
the tongues of flame that rest on the disciples in Pentecost. These are the, the, uh, the lights of the menorah resting on them as branches, right? So seven often, often, often goes with the Holy Spirit. Um, so, uh, the, to stand, uh, well, originally the menorah stood in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It represented Heavenly Mother and wisdom, right? And according to ancient Jews and Christians, the Holy Spirit, of course. Uh, the menorah had seven branches, so Isaiah said of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one anointed with that olive oil that burns on each of those lamps, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out from his roots. Notice the, the branch imagery here. The Messiah is the branch, besides being the anointed one, right? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of Wisdom, okay, Spirit of the Lord, that's one, Spirit of Wisdom, that's two, and Understanding, three, the Spirit of Counsel, four, and Might, five, the Spirit of Knowledge, six, and the Fear of the Lord, seven, seven spirits. And ever since Isaiah, and probably long before that, seven spirits, the sevenfold ministry. When Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, sometimes it's seven, often it's seven, like that. So we're going to see uh, the seven-branch menorah in a second. And um, well, the, trans the translation, of course, is going to be confusing because the menorah is a candlestick or a lampstand, but it has seven branches. It's not seven, it's not seven individual you know, stands, uh, you know, candlesticks like, uh, like the King James gives it. Um, <coughs> but it's going to sound like there's seven menorahs. There's only one. Okay. Uh, MSG version uh, is uh, is about the only one that gets that quite right. It's going to say that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the menorah's seven branches, and are the seven churches. That's that's what the MSG translation is going to say, and that's what really is going on here. It's just a translation issue between the Hebrew and the Greek. So we just keep that in mind, that there's just one menorah, right, with the seven branches. So then, who is Revelation addressed to? Well, seven churches. From whom? From the Trinity. From the Father, who was and is and is yet to be, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn. Right? It, it continues on here. Uh, verse, in verse 5, To him who loves us and freed us, uh, or washed us, some, some translations or some manuscripts say, or washed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So it is. Amen. And, uh, and we, can just, um, we can just summarily review what this is, right? He's coming with the clouds, and everyone will see What's the cloud? This, the cloud is the glory, the Shekinah, the presence, the divine presence of God, which was considered to be a person. <laughs> well, what person? Wisdom, the Holy Spirit. The, the antique Greeks or antique uh, Jews had the name Shekinah, which just means the presence. Well, it comes from the, from the Targums. Right? And think about how this occurs all through, think about the, this thematically through history, the cloud that appears in the tabernacle when it's dedicated, and even Moses can't even stand to be in there, has to leave. The cloud that appears, and the cloud of glory that appears in the temple, and all the priests and Solomon have to go scurrying out, right? The cloud of, of glory and fire that accompanies them in the wilderness. The cloud that, uh, that engulfs Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Uh, the cloud that's going to appear on every dwelling place, according to Isaiah, the Lord will create on every dwelling place of Mount Zion on, on our assemblies a cloud. 
a flaming fire, the glory will be a defense. When, when God comes, he'll be clothed, he'll be clothed in glory, coming in the clouds for everyone to see. Look at Psalm 104. We won't go there. Um, ben Sirah says, my throne was in a pillar of cloud. Um, and then, this is fascinating because in, 18, in his 1832 account of the first vision, Joseph says, behold, and lo, I come quickly as is written of me in the cloud clothed in the glory of my father. So this is all this, is all this imagery, all this same imagery from Moses to uh, to Joseph Smith. <laughs> okay, so this is what this is what, uh, and I'm just giving you kind of an example of the way that the way that uh, Revelation invokes this kind of imagery. It's saying more than just what it says. It's saying all this that's all this baggage you might call it, I guess, all this associated stuff that that a little image of a little vignette like that can uh, can evoke, right? All right. So, um, verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, what is this? Well, let's introduce the idea that there's, um, that there's astral imagery, there's, there's astronomical imagery here oh, throughout the whole thing. And we're just going to barely even touch on that. But I just want to let you know that, uh, that, that, it's, that it's there. We, we might touch on some some big points, but uh, the Alpha and Omega, the Alpha star is Aldebaran, the rose of the vernal equinox, and the Omega star was uh, the main star in Libra, the scales that rose at the autumnal equinox. So it's the beginning and the end, the rebirth and the judgment. It's Passover and Yom Kippur. Okay? So, so even saying Alpha and Omega is not just the beginning and the end, it's all this other stuff, right? Creation and judgment. Um, the, the ceremonial cycle of the of the Jewish calendar right has, has all these implications here for the people that were listening to it um, so they, they they thought that you know the that the plan for the world was was to some extent reflected in the skies right not that not that the stars controlled them uh, but that it was reflected in God's uh, um, astronomical creation right? And by the way, the Jews were the most famous astronomers of John's day. We we don't normally think of that. We think, uh, oh, uh, you know, astronomers they're uh, they're pagans and they're you know locked out of the kingdom of God. No, the Jews were the most famous. Everybody says so, uh, even in other countries. In their in their texts, when they're talking about this constellation, that constellation, they'll they'll often say, oh, and the Jews call it this, <laughs> right? Because because they're the standard, right? Now think for us just a second. Um, that on the temple was an observatory. Why? Because they had to keep the calendar. They had to know, you know the phases of the moon and the rising of this star and that star to know when to keep the calendar. And so they saw significance in these things, and, and John's going to allude to a lot of that. Um, verse 9, I, John, your brother, who share with you the persecutions and the kingdom and the endurance in Jesus, was called was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thuatera, to Sardes, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Of course, this is just one menorah that originally stood in the Holy of Holies. And of course, this is where this vision takes place, right? I mean, it's, a, it's the, 
the heavenly temple, of which the earthly temple is just a uh, similitude, right? And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. So he's, so the Son of Man, this is Jesus, clothed, clothed as the high priest on Yom Kippur. He's clothed in a simple white robe with the sash and stuff like that. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, we've heard this description of a heavenly vision of a heavenly personage before. It's in Ezekiel and Daniel. He's going to draw on this again and again, and every time he does, we've got to know that it's the one like the Son of Man, right? This is Jesus. He's not going to tell us, I saw Jesus. He's going to say, I saw a guy, white hair, eyes like a flame, uh, legs like brass, and rushing waters, or some of the clue like that. He's going to give us these this vignette so we know who he's talking about. Upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man up, upon it. Uh, this, this, from, this is the way Ezekiel describes it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and had brightness round about. Right, so uh, so Ezekiel uh, glimpses the Lord, hears his voice, falls on his face, and John's going to do the same thing. Okay. So, so, so we're, we're, we're supposed to connect. We're supposed to connect everything about this vision to the visions of Daniel and Ezekiel. Right? We're supposed to think of those things and everything that that, that, that implies. If we just look at look at this, then we're missing most of what ancient people saw. Um, in, in a later vision recorded in Ezekiel 8, 2, uh, Ezekiel saw the same shining person again. It was unmistakably the Lord. So compare compare this then with, with Daniel's vision. Just to uh, try and prove my point here. A certain man clothed in linen whose loins were girded with fine gold. Okay, so the loins aren't brass. This time they're gold. Okay, fine. His body also was like the barrel. B-E-R-Y-L, the, the jewel, right? And his face has the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet alike in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude, right? A, a thunder, you know, rushing water, these kind of things, a big, big noise. You get it? So he's evoking all these visions. Verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is just what Ezekiel does. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. By the way, you know, in, in one of his accounts, um, or not his accounts, in another person's account of uh, Joseph's vision that they related, that he related to them, Jesus touched him in this, in this same way um, and said something effective, called him by name and said, don't be afraid. Right. Uh, it's a it's a lovely touch. Okay, we'll take a pause right there. We'll start up with chapter two. I promise the chapters will go faster after this, but this is all that intro stuff. And so pause for now. <laughs>